0: I am now joined by uh, Miles Bragg, uh, who. Well, actually, why, why don't you uh, introduce yourself for anybody who wasn't here the you know previous time you were here? Sure. Yeah.
1: My name is Miles Bragg. I'm a community defense activist and a media journalist based out of the Twin Cities. I've been involved in and adjacent to a number of social movements here over the last decade or so. And uh, we're hoping to talk about the George Floyd uprising It's kind of the note that we left off. Um, Uh, What's that?
0: that? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Keep going.
1: Oh, no, I was just going to say last time we kind of left off on the note of, uh, or I was saying not to sleep on the Twin Cities. I think that we've got a lot of bright, things happening here a lot of development a lot of reason for optimism moving forward and that's not to say that there aren't uh, many pitfalls that lie ahead of us still but um, I'm generally optimistic and I I wanted to speak on that and maybe kind of just chart the terrain of the past and moving forward.
0: Okay fair enough well um, yeah so I, I wanted you know I think there are a few different places we could you know we can start this off one reason i was interested in uh having you back is that you know I, I think you're somebody who probably does see um you know certain things both in terms of you know goals and strategies and all of that stuff um you know pretty differently than than i do you know you're an anarchist uh, although obviously there's a lot of sort of shared goals and values there so which actually helps make it a more interesting, uh, conversation. So, you know, there are a few different ways we could kind of, um, you know, we could start this off and I do want to hear about the work that you're, you know, that you're doing there. But, uh, you know, when we were communicating with this about this in advance and, uh, over on, uh, on DMS, uh, you know, you'd, um, you know, you'd kind of mentioned the, uh, you know, the Van Gogh incident uh, as, uh, as one possible entry point. We don't have to spend a lot of time on that uh, Mm -hmm. since I I don't think either of us are, you know, sort of uh, like necessarily like deadly committed to a certain position on that. But, uh, but I am curious about your thoughts on that.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm interested in it insofar as, the the spectacle of the action itself breaking through to the larger mainstream um and kind of permeating just a lot of different areas of normy life, you know, less politicized people are are speaking on this and discussing it. So to that extent I I, I weigh on it in support and in with solidarity with those activists. And particularly with like the the videographer that was there to just mm-hmm. film the action and then the repression that he dealt with afterwards, uh, the intimidation, he was arrested and then later released. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I like you said, I don't, I don't have a, a particularly strong opinion on it and I'm not going to die on any hill, but I, I think that the action was successful in that it called attention to... The larger issue of climate change, and it kind of really puts into perspective for for some, I think, like, well, what matters most to us, some art that largely only wealthy people can enjoy and own and Uh, take, take, take pride in and things like that? Or do we care more about our collective future, the sustainability of the planet, so on and so forth? So if you put it on that type of scale, I think, you know, the choice becomes clear.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that the um you know I, I you know I think the great art should be in uh, publicly owned museums so where everybody could enjoy the and I guess uh, I don't know what the I don't know who owns it but it wasn't in a museum of course also the art was uh was fine uh, cuz it was under glass so it was, it was more of a symbolic than an actual uh defacement which is which is one reason I can't get like uh too excited either way about it. But, but I guess, uh, you know, like, like I hear what you're saying, like, I certainly, you know, certainly feel nothing but sympathy for the the goals of the protesters. And I get your point that the, that like, insofar as, you know, we're talking about it, everybody's talking about it. That's a, that's a win. I, I do wonder about the messaging because it, it sort of seems to set up, you know, whatever kind of climate action they want exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I know different people have looked at the organization they're part of and the the demands that they have, but it's, to, it seems to set that up as, as something that like the, the sort of pitch for it is like, you know, screw you guys who don't care about this. Uh, and which seems to be a little bit different from, you know, like, it, it it seems like the actors in that play are like, you know, the those protesters. And then I guess, I don't know, like bougie people who like paintings uh, as the, uh, as the, as the opposition. And like, you know, what's, what's sort of missing from that is like uh, how like climate, uh, how climate action is going to interface with like the needs of, of everybody else. Right. So like one thing that I always really liked, you know, even though I think this battle's kind of been lost to some extent, like I I liked the original green new deal messaging because just the whole idea of that combination of words is like, you're sort of marrying environmental action to uh, to some kind of popular economic agenda, like a new deal. And, um, and, you know, and, and I think, the more, the more you can sort of tie what you want to, um, to, like, here's how it's going to benefit like ordinary working class people to to have climate action that, um, you know, that like will will create all of these jobs to to do this massive energy transition or whatever. Then that's, you know, I I think that's going to be the most promising approach because like to the extent that the pitch for climate action is like uh, I don't know, making few people feel bad about not caring about it or something like that. I'm like maybe a little bit less optimistic about that. Sure.
1: Yeah. And I I mean, I, I could definitely see where you're coming from on that. And it's not to say that I don't have criticisms of the, the action or the messaging, I guess, either, but they're, they're just not as important as the action happening itself and forcing the conversation, I think on folks like us and on regular folks. Um, i mean i i see a lot of like individualism and almost like um, yeah. uh the the inspiration almost derived from like the situationists you know that type yeah. of activism that you know uh it, it's not forward-facing it's more clandestine sh- trying to shock the the public less so trying to build a massive movement uh and uh, interdisciplinary movement, uh, uh, multi generational movement, uh, multiracial movement—it's nothing like that. But it is a good conversation starter, you know. And so, yeah, it's and, and I always try to focus on it's not like either or. We should focus more mm. on and type of things. None of these actions exist in a vacuum. And like you know, during the the the, the first New Deal, uh, yeah. There was a lot of progressive activism quote-unquote that was taking place at the time a lot of mass marches and things like that but there was also a lot of militancy and violence at times combativeness between different areas of the power structure and the 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 working class you know so i think on the spectrum of activism you know between the more liberal uh quote-unquote individualist or and then on the other side the more mass oriented and potentially more combative more openly challenging power structures you know again i'm more of a both and let's try to build a multiplicity of tactics as a movement not denigrate you know something that we don't necessarily maybe it's not something that we would agree with a hundred percent or do ourselves, but we could see the, uh-huh. the inspiration. Where, where, where are they going with this? I, I, I see more good faith in that action than I see cynicism and cloud sharking and stuff like that. Does that make sense? Gotcha.
0: Well, why don't we switch gears to talk about a different kind of activism? One that you've mentioned uh, a few times, like when you introduced yourself just now, you know, you you call yourself community defense activist. Uh, when you've talked about, you know, even the stuff going on in your area, uh, I think when we've talked recently, and then also when you were on the call in before, you know, you mentioned the uh, the post George Floyd, you know, protest unrest and in, in twenty twenty, uh, quite a bit, right? You know, when you were uh, when you were talking about all of that, so uh, so that that might be a that might be a good place to to sort of go next like uh like how do you see like how do you see all of that like that that sort of um that cluster of issues about um uh, uh, you know police violence and racism and community defense and all of that stuff and like you know kind of like what the long-term goals are of all of that and like how you see what you're doing is fitting into that sure
1: well, maybe just give me a minute to set this up because I, I think sure. I have
0: yeah. something of a
1: unique perspective for a couple of reasons. The first one, which I won't dive into too much, uh, but obviously is very, um, a, a formative, uh, a part of part of me and my identity is that I was raised, uh, in a household with one of my parents being a law enforcement officer. Um, mm-hmm. and they were my, dad. it was my dad and he was a cop until he retired in 2009. Um, and so that was definitely, that's been informative to my, just my view of policing in general, let alone when I started becoming involved in politics and the police brutality movements and things like that. So I would, I would mention that at the start and then, as I mentioned before, I spent, you know, easily since 2009, 10 and onwards being involved with either documenting these movements or participating in, in various ways. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen this, I talked about it before, we've seen this happen in our city multiple times over the last decade where we had high profile police killings of unarmed folks. And usually, if any, like zero accountability, you know, up until right. the George Floyd murder, of course. So flash forward through all the, those years, around late 2019, I ended up moving out west, out to the west coast with a partner at the time. And it, it didn't work out everything I was trying to do out there. But I remember clearly the day uh, that I woke up and I saw the video of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck. For over nine minutes mm-hmm. and obviously was sickened and repulsed like everyone else who saw it and i went into work that day and i remember telling my manager keep an eye on my city because this is going to be huge and i had no idea how big it was going to be you know those first three days i was just glued to my screens in my apartment crying watching what's going on in my city as you know the the protests exploded, and then on that third night, eventually the pr- police precinct is burned down, and to see this these this symbolic act of resistance culminate in such joy and celebration, and the the overwhelming feelings of positivity and possibility that were just you you, you could cut the. The, the atmosphere with a knife and everyone in town was just, I, I was talking to people and there was just an unparalleled feeling unlike any other before, you know, and the mm. the way that other cities took from this example all the way out to the Middle East across the world, you know, it, it blew me away. And it was honestly, you know, it was a week after the murder that I decided to break my lease and move back home. Um, so I moved back home and i I made it back before the end of june and trying to reintegrate myself into the movement at that point was chaotic uh there was a lot of stuff going on at that time there was a lot of repression going on at that Mm -hmm. time i mean there was an overwhelming feeling at least on my part that The FBI and the fusion centers and all these private contractors that moved into town, they, they were just everywhere. That was the feeling that I had, you know, coming back. But there was still a lot of good stuff that was happening. A lot of experimental forms of organization, a lot of autonomous organizing on a block by block basis. And people, neighbors coming out to talk to their other neighbors to say, what the hell are we going to do about this? What can we do if something bad happens on our block so that we don't need to go to the police? Because clearly they're not they're not capable of doing their jobs and they're not being held accountable for their just wild activity, you know? So, yeah, I'll probably just leave it there for now. But the, the one thing that I wanted to focus on Ugh. is the, the overwhelming... Positivity and possibility that arose from that, and these new forms of experimentation with political organizing, with defending your own block or your workplace, or that type of stuff is what I view as like overwhelmingly the positives. Um, Mm -hmm. it forced a number of reckonings in other spheres of our like Twin Cities culture, including in music and stuff like that. We had a huge um, obviously during that time we're, we're in peak pandemic mode and people are laid off this is the beginning of the great resignation. And there was a lot of houseless people, a lot of houseless camps that were popping up all over the place. And then those started getting smashed and destroyed by the police. And these people were continually, continuously being displaced. But in result or in response to that, rather people came out in droves to support our houseless neighbors to get them the materials that they need and so on and so forth. But yeah, I'll, I'll let you respond to that because I've, I've gone on for a minute.
0: Yeah, no, that was really interesting. I mean, like looking, so, okay. So there are a couple places that we could take this, but I'm just going to take it one at a time looking back at that that moment that summer, like, I guess when you talk about, uh, you know, forcing, you know, reckoning and, and cultural things, you mentioned music and like, that seems like, you know, unfortunately kind of the, uh, the place, a lot of that stuff ended up going. Right. Cause, cause uh, the, you know, it seems like all of that energy uh, that, it was that was released by by the shock and outrage about that murder did not you know i mean i'm I'm not speaking to the city here, you know much more about that than I do, but i mean like in terms of like American society in general uh you know didn't lead to uh, didn't lead to very much uh in terms of like changes to how policing worked I mean a little bit. Uh, in some places, yeah, but
1: take a little bit of issue with that. I mean, for, for a okay. moment, here, we had the city council actively debating Since... the question of, should we disband and our, abolish our, our police department? I, I think yeah. that was,
0: do a you, do you think there was ever a 1% chance that was going to happen?
1: Likely not. No, particularly given the makeup of the council, uh, Sure, but I mean, it still was forcing this question into the the highest echelon of our our regional decision-making structure, you know, and there was a lot of reasons why I feel that that power that we were talking about, that eruption, was dispersed and diffused over a lot of different areas. Part of that was a goal of the state, I think, was to... Mm -hmm. Distract in many ways, displace, clamp down on, disrupt, infiltrate. I mean, any any way that they could, they they wanted to, to to shunt the power that they were the, that they were feeling. And on the other side, I I feel like you know, I one of my criticisms of of the uprising in general, I guess, was that there was this huge insurrection or uprising, but there was very little organization that was concerted, a a, a focused political program that could get these people into committees in their neighborhoods, into their workplaces, into the the schools and things like that, so that we could build lasting political vehicles that carried on the work and the aims of the, the movement itself. So I can hear yeah. hear some hear some of the criticism but yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean like it, it seems like nationally there was quite a bit of um you know like there seems to be have been quite a bit more cultural reckoning than there was uh than there was uh structural change t- to anything, you know, certainly policing um but so I mean we can talk about why that why that was, but I mean I also think you know, it is so, so yeah, I mean, I think there are two different discussions there. One is why that happened, right. You know, why, like, I mean, in most places, you know, I mean, whatever might've been possible in the summer of 2020, I mean, I think you probably agree that um certainly in most cities in the United States, policing doesn't work in any way. That's obviously very different from how it did two years ago.
1: Sure. And maybe not radically different, but I do view what happened as not an anomaly and not something that we'll just move past i think that this is going to continue to force us down this trajectory particularly because we haven't seen meaningful reforms or steps towards abolition we're going to continue to run into these problems you know
0: well that so for sure we're going to continue to run into the problems um but yeah, I am curious. So, you know, when, um, you know, when the city council was, you know, talking at one point about, you know, disbanding the police department, and I will say, I mean, I was always pretty sure that at best, you know, that was been what that would have been a, a rebranded. I mean, there was just, I have a really, really hard time imagining a scenario where the, the city just didn't have, uh, didn't have a police department. Uh, although they could certainly call it something else. And maybe that would have been accompanied by some reforms that would have been good.
1: But it's
0: right. more or less what, what it would have
1: existed on. They were going to try to institute some sort of quote unquote community control over the police establish like an oversight board and things like that. Shift a lot of resources to uh, mental health and social workers and things like that, which would arguably be good things is, is sure. it abolition not exactly, but it is, it's a step in the right direction, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I agree that a lot yeah, of those would great. be good things. I mean, I, I do think that sometimes when we talk about, um, uh, healthcare and social workers and stuff, um, I think that, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think it would, like I am all in favor of, of more money for all of those things. Uh, I do question sometimes what that would actually look like in terms of, um, uh, in terms of uh of those people call being called into certain situations and uh and i also think that uh just shifting around uh, i'm also not sure how much you could do at the local level just because like if you're just shifting around resources from different budget like municipal budget lines I, I think a lot of times that's even in really big cities that's less than a lot of people think it is and um you know i i don't know i i, I think um you know, I want to know like, all right, are these like, uh, are these like, like, uh, social workers who are actually like public employees? Is there like a contract, whatever, but I uh, would get into the weeds of all that. But yeah, I broadly agree with you that like the kinds of things you're talking about would be good things, you know, would be steps in the right direction. Uh, but, but I think maybe an, an interesting place to sort of, sort of get to, you know, in, in the last little chunk of the conversation today, which is certainly not, you know, going to be our last one. Uh, but is is what you know like what that right direction is in other words not just like because because i suspect that you and i are probably going to dis going to agree much more than we disagree on like what would be positive steps if they happened um like look if there was that you know like an oversight board that was like a real oversight board that could actually like you know fire cops and stuff like that that would be good you know if if you uh if you had more resources invested into public health and addiction services and all kinds of things that you know, sometimes uh, that you know, um, to to try to minimize the number of situations that armed cops are involved in, that would be good. But mm-hmm. but but I think you know, getting into the long term, and I mean this this does really, in some ways, get to the core of why I wouldn't call myself an anarchist. Um, think like. I guess I I tend to get really frustrated when I hear uh, when I hear language about like abolition because you know maybe maybe I've just talked to the wrong people or I've just read the wrong people but I never feel like I have a good sense of what that actually means like Ooh. like what what is you know because cause if we you know like there's like a certain kind of like uh like old style socialist or anarchist who will say like, uh, well, uh, you know, if we don't have capitalism, we won't have crime anymore. So this will all be a non-issue. And, you know, maybe, Uh, although also that the order of operations would be like, you do get rid of all that first. And then all these systems for dealing with it are just redundant. And also, frankly, I'm pretty skeptical because I think, I, I could absolutely believe that if we got rid of poverty and severe economic inequality, that would get rid of most crime. I think that's just true. But like I would agree with that.
1: Yeah. I, I think most crimes are related to crimes of scarcity. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think most crimes are. I don't think all of them are. I think that like interpersonal violence happens for all kinds of reasons and, and I don't I don't think I don't think it'd be a hundred percent even in the sort of like uh, you know, advanced communist utopia of the twenty third century or whatever. But in um but like also the question to me and, and I, I, I guess I guess let me just set it up this way before I throw back to you um, and then you know probably close out with some of your thoughts about this but like is okay uh, police, especially in America, and I think that's actually worth circling and underline that it is actually way worse in the United States than it is in many other comparable countries. Like um, in, uh, you know, like tens of millions of people live in the UK. And I think the last year I saw statistics about, there were like three people who were killed by police and that's not even three unjustified necessarily. That's just three total. Um, So I think like, for what, and we can argue about what the reasons are for the difference, but American policing is just like spectacularly bad by yeah. by first world standards. Um, but in uh, but like
1: I could even talk, I could even offer something to man that one one resource that I would point people towards who are specifically sure. interested in Minneapolis's history. There's a great organization. Uh, Called MPD 150. If you go to Uh MPD 150.com, just the three letters, the three numbers, they put together an extremely comprehensive report called Enough is Enough, uh, 150-year performance review of the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, I I can't, you know, uh, I can't hype that one enough, honestly. I think what they did was wonderful and really kind of... Shows the history, the development of our uh, North American policing structure and the way that it's evolved from, uh, uh, in many ways, uh, uh, union busting and Pinkerton stuff, uh, slave Uh, patrol and and things like that. And how it's developed into this modern age, this this class protection racket, more or less. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that out there. I really hope people go check that out.
0: Fair enough. Um, yeah, so, but then the question is, like, what would we actually, like, how would we like, like, what would, how do we want, um, you know, laws, uh, you know, the laws that we like, you know, the ones against rape and murder and uh, stuff like that. Um, how do we want those to, to be enforced? And, and one, um, and one worry that I have is that if, I mean, look, certainly under capitalism, especially if you talk about just not having like, um, police and you've still got a bunch of crime, then that sounds kind of dystopian. That sort of sounds like, you know, private security for people who can afford it. And, and, uh, right. and God knows what it will look like for everybody else. And even term, uh, You know, I do, you know, when I hear this phrase about community defense and stuff like that, I do
2: worry about that a little bit. Just
0: sort of not having some kind of publicly owned professional entity, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, that is, uh, that's responsible for uh, enforcing those laws, you know, that we like, uh, would, uh, is that, you know, the... um, if it's just that you sort of have like kind of informal community patrols or whatever, uh, sometimes um like, you know, there you have in some ways maybe even less accountability and you have um and and if you look at you know, if you look at some of what's happened, you know, I mean they're just to name a couple of obvious names, you know, Trayvon Martin or Ahmed Arbery, you know, were 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 killed by uh by people who were just like, you know, neighborhood watch types. Um, so, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, and, and then certainly, um, when you think about like what you do, if, if there are people you need to remove from society temporarily, um, you know, I mean, I, I certainly, uh, you know, like I don't like prisons, but you know, what I like even less would be like the death penalty, uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, I don't, you know i certainly uh, i certainly don't want um i certainly don't want that and I also worry that if if um you know if you don't have i mean i guess this goes beyond the police abolition issue specifically to sort of more general issues about anarchism and all that even as a long term term goal right you know i i do want there you know i do like certain aspects of something like a court system that like protects the rights of defendants that you know that if you have um that you can, that, you know, evidence has to be pre- presented against you, that if, you know, everybody in your area is biased against you, there's some sort of way you could appeal for a change of venue, all of that stuff. So uh, I know I just, like, threw a bunch of stuff, um, okay. you know, kind of against the wall at the same time, but I mean, like, I, I I think probably enough to, you know, give you a sense of the sort of bundle of concerns that I would have about all of that, and then maybe you could just kind of, like, spend a few minutes... Speak into any part of that that you that you're inclined to for for maybe the last few minutes we have together.
1: For sure, for sure. Now, I definitely, you know, I hear you on a lot of that. I share some of that. Um, there's no really cut and dry, easy answer here. We're, we're kind of in an unprecedented place. Uh, I think that, um, in terms of us evolving as a species, we're we're going to need to figure out. Our way out of this mess. We're going to need to take a good look at what does work about our judicial system, our justice system, which you know, to some people is nothing. To to me, I think there are a couple things that we could we could keep, you know, um, and we're going to need to evolve and move forward. Do I think that reforming the, the and this is just my political analysis. Do I think that reforming the police department is going to come through the ballot box? Probably not. Uh, in, in many ways, I feel like we need to force the change. And to do that, we need to experiment with these different forms of you know, organizing, uh, policing our block. And I hate to use that term. But like defending our our neighborhoods our, our workplaces our schools but to to stress with that organization that we need methods and programs of accountability transparency recallability because otherwise we might just end up like you said recreating a neighborhood watch a, a vigilante situation or you know and that doesn't displace the police at all if anything that that aids them you know so it's a fine line that we need to walk and it's going to look different in every locality. I can really only speak to how it might happen here. Um, I think, you know, one of one of the other things that happened post uprising, I I mentioned loosely about some of the blocks that were organizing on an autonomous basis, they weren't talking to nonprofits, they weren't talking to the city, they were talking to their neighbors. And they were taking care of each other, you know, that's, that's more or less what I want to see. And I think that, you know, to kind of quote Buckminster Fuller, almost in order to change something, you got to build the new model that makes the old one obsolete. Right. Right. I think by building something and by, not falling into those pitfalls that we mentioned, we need to be open. We need to be accountable. We need a mass movement. We need the. We need more people, the more, the better, the, the more transparency, the better. So we create buy-in, you know, Um, there were other like, uh, I'm not going to not, not nonprofits, but just like groups of individuals that formed that were creating their own like, Hey, call us. If you're, if you're having a domestic situation or a situation on the block or something like that, you can call us, you know, on Friday and Saturday nights and we'll come out there and help you deescalate the situation, try to come to a resolution Uh and so on and so forth. That's the type of stuff that I want to see more of more funding towards that end, so Uh on and so forth. And then, you know, when we build those structures, those alternative institutions that can challenge the the monopoly that the police and the nonprofits and the state have on mm-hmm. ju- justice, what we understand is justice, then I think we're going to be in a better spot. But like I said before, it's going to happen differently in different areas. And maybe we'll, the cities, the Twin Cities, will be one of the first ones to, to develop a model that other cities can, can look at because yeah, as long as capitalism exists, the profit motive still exists. We're still going to have this impetus, this drive to lock up as many people as possible and Mm -hmm. make money off of their, their slave labor. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of this will probably come um, eventually through policy, but Politics is downstream from culture, right? So we need to be able to affect the culture and create that buy-in before the politicians are going to take notice and even do anything about it, cynical or good faith or or, or whatever it is.
0: All right. Anarcho-Breitbartism, politics downstream from culture. Uh, if, uh, if I've got a... Um, uh if you've got a minute we we do have two calls so we can um if you can if you can stick around we can take both of those before we uh we get off for today right, let's, let's, do it, do, right, let's do it uh andrew what's on your mind hey ben hey
2: miles yeah i think um community you know community protection or community defense um along with other forms of community sovereignty something i'm very interested in um that's that's probably where i'm the most anarchist in if i had to ascribe a common label to my politics um and what i yeah what i'm curious about maybe um miles since you are in the twin cities uh if you could talk more about like how has the how have the cities themselves or the the police agencies that are around tried to kind of co-opt, um, you know, momentum towards uh, defunding the police and, and you know, what is hype and what is real about how Minneapolis has changed since 2020. And then also maybe from Ben, what I'm curious is if you would say, like, if you're imagining a... a sort of autonomous community defense, are there issues that you imagine would be worse th- in that scenario than under the the current public? You know, it's technically a publicly owned system that we have now. Um, I'm just curious, like, I, I think if I were to take a country like, um, you know, Nicaragua, I'm much less uh, interested in, you know, getting rid of the police immediately, but in the United States, I feel very different about that. Um, so I'm. I'd just be curious, like, um, from 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 both of you to those questions.
0: Sure, uh, Miles, do you want to start?
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, I think probably the most.
1: I mean, it, it's a big question, sure. But one of the most notable things that I can think of within those first few months after the uprising was the way that. Obviously, the the city itself, the police department lost complete control over even basic day to day, you know, duties more or less that they're they're typically charged with. They, they lost that uh, very quickly, and once the precinct burned down, I think the Walls realized that hey, we got to get the National Guard in here. We need help. We need help. We need help. And there was a lot of contracting to different con- private contractors that used all sorts of dubious, uh, maybe even illegal methods to spy on protesters, to infiltrate and disrupt their organizing. That was one big thing. Another part of it was, I, I frequently joke about, you know, there's this saying, Minnesota the land of 10,000 lakes, but I say about 20,000 nonprofits. There's uh-huh. like, they... There was this, There's this huge liberal or neoliberal nonprofit industrial complex that was tapped into by the mayor, particularly, where he was allocating a lot of money to these younger upstart nonprofits. And several of them were also, I mean, using dubious means to break up protests. They were giving free free passes by the cops to go out there and smash through protests, um, they provided private security. They were like the, for the mayor, they were his little bodyguards and henchmen, you know? So that those were the two biggest things that I would say played a giant part in diffusing a lot of that energy like we mentioned before. And, and yeah, I hope that answers your question.
2: Yeah, can I ask a, a little clarifying thing? Sure. Yeah. So, you, so you're saying after the after the the public of the Twin Cities had largely lost, you know, they had dropped support for the police. Um, the police resorted to more private contract, and the mayor resorted to more private contracting to kind of skirt around uh, some of the the public backlash they would receive if they had just doubled down on, no, we're going to have more cops.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. And it, I mean, there was a lot of sleight of hand with the messaging that was going on. And like we mentioned before, the things at City Hall, the this idea of can we institute some sort of community control over the police, you know, the, in ways that they've done in the past that have always ended up being toothless and uh, the cops always end up getting their way. There's the police union, you uh, has outsized power in terms of who's yeah. being dealt with and who's being held accountable and not. I mean, the head of our police union for many years was a a, a Nazi or a, a white supremacist more or less. His name is Bob Kroll. And that guy mm-hmm. was elected time and time again, you know, by the, his own peers, you know? So there was a lot of, it it worked a little bit differently than I would maybe if, if this uprising had happened in, you know, Fort Worth, Texas or something like that. I could see the, the response being much more just heavy handed and no, we're going to stop the crime and lawlessness because we're going to stop the crime and lawlessness. But here it was like diffused through a lot of different like messaging. And like I said, sleight of hand, different tactics and things like that. And then one other thing that yeah. I should mention really quickly is that just over a year after George Floyd's murder, there was another man that was murdered in uptown Minneapolis in a parking garage. His name was Winston Smith. That spawned uh, more weeks of protest movement down in that part of town. And then uh, one night uh, a, a, a guy comes crashing through the protest, the vigil, with his car, and he kills a woman, Deanna Marie. Um,
2: yeah, I remember hearing about that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, like, th- these cycles only continue to perpetuate themselves and spin themselves out, you know, so,
2: yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I sorry, real quick, I'll, I'll get off here in a minute. I yeah, yeah no, no, please, please,
0: please, please. Yep.
2: Yeah, Ben, if you still have a minute to answer my other question i'd still love to hear but I, i i was at a lot of the protests in seattle and we experienced a lot of very similar um like kind of shifty messaging um from the city and the police department while they were you know speaking out of both sides of their mouth um and doing um you know very um very Contrary things to what they were saying to try to placate the public and still defuse the protest. Uh,
0: So I guess real quick, and we 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 had another caller uh, who dropped out. I'm not sure if that was on purpose or not. uh, But if you do want to get back in, we can quickly take your question at the end. But um, I I do just want to answer Andrew's question, and uh, I, I guess maybe just succinctly say, like two things about that. One is, yeah, potentially right if you don't have like a you know like publicly owned entity where people's job is to enforce these things but enforcement is like diffused in some way uh it's a little hard to evaluate uh whether like what the advantages and disadvantages of that are because oftentimes frankly it's just incredibly vague and so it's it's hard to kind of like wrap your head around exactly what's being suggested Uh, Which is one of the reasons, you know, I I mean, I I guess to emphasize an area maybe of agreement with Miles, I mean, like, you know, he talked about sort of local experiments, which, you know, I'm I'm all for, you know, so you can like point at specific things and say, like, let's do that, right, Right, which then you can have like a more interesting discussion about it, right, rather than um, oftentimes, like where I get really frustrated about conversations about abolition is that I just don't know exactly what's being proposed, Right, like if you, um, like this is a police abolition example, not a prison abolition one. A, a prison abolition one, not a police one. But like, uh, for example, when raising similar concerns about prison abolition, uh, several people recommended I read Angela Davis's book about it, which you know has has lots of good stuff in it. But like the last chapter is the one where she's finally like, okay, what's the alternative? And then she doesn't really talk about it, right? You know, she just kind of. Uh, like it's it 's a little hand wavy at the end, right you know that we don 't really get to hear what the alternative is, so it 's very hard to assess that uh Are there ways in which just diffusing it so like just ordinary citizens could take out all these functions uh without like working for some kind of entity that was publicly owned, so theoretically you know there's some level of public control over it are there ways that that could be worse and less accountable? yeah, I think there there are. Uh, I mean, I already mentioned the kind of neighborhood watch examples and the sort of obvious pitfalls of like vigilanteism, And certainly if you really start to think about like, okay, if we literally have no police, um, you know, like has traffic enforcement working and is sort of everybody empowered to pull over everybody. Um, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm at least like, I at least have some worries about that. I think that like the shape of those words is probably obvious enough. I won't belabor the point, but, uh, but I also thought the most interesting part of what you said was, you know, I mean, you mentioned Nicaragua, which I don't, you know, I don't know enough about to, you know, comment too specifically, but you sort of said like, you know, but, but the gist of what I took from that part of what you said was like, well, policing is much worse in some countries than others, which is like clearly true, right? Police in America are just, like are just kind of jaw-droppingly worse than, than a lot of uh, comparable countries that um, like places in the developed world where, where police violence is, is just much, much rarer or or like, you know, whatever they're, you know, countries that are much smaller than the United States, but like, they're not like city States, right. You know, they're like real countries where, uh, where like nobody is killed by the police in, in, in a normal year. Um, and, and I think that this kind of takes us to, like, a big question about, okay, why is it that the United States is so bad? So Miles earlier mentioned uh, a sort of historical argument about American policing, and, and I'm not going to dismiss that. I think there might be something to that. But I also, you know, that, like, in terms of, like, earlier institutions that influenced it. But I also think that part of the answer is just, like, people like, uh, reading people like Cedric Johnson, uh, you know, very convincing about this, that, Part of it uh if we're asking like why specifically in the last several decades, it's so bad, which is, like the last several decades like a good time frame to look at, because like that's there are certain kinds of things in terms of police becoming more militarized uh you know routinely doing the like aggressive crazy tactics like you know sWAT raids where you know they don't knock and they kill the family dog and all that stuff have really gotten worse. And it's like, it seems like a big part of the answer to why is that, you know, if you go back like the sixties and seventies, you know, I think there was maybe a crossroads there where we could have deepened the, you know, the great society, like had more public programs and moved towards something more like social democracy and, and sort of to to tackle poverty and all the social ills that come through with poverty that way uh and instead the in a very bipartisan way i think the ruling class opted for the opposite strategy which is no fuck it we'll just manage the social ills of poverty with like really aggressive policing and mass incarceration and and all this stuff i mean and and so uh so i think that that's not to say you know, I mean, sometimes people use the phrase treating the symptoms in a really dismissive way, which is silly because obviously you need to treat the symptoms. Symptoms will kill you <laughs> if you don't treat them. But like, uh, but, but I think, you know, and I think this is an area of a broad agreement maybe between me and miles from earlier in the conversation, uh, is, uh, is that it's a lot of times this stuff is, you know, I mean, you know, he said culture, politics downstream from, from culture. I mean, I'd say, an awful lot of the time uh, politics and uh, certainly stuff like local law enforcement is downstream of much bigger issues about how material resources are, are distributed in our society. Right. So it's like, and and none of this means like people shouldn't pursue like local reforms that would make policing not as horrific as it is right now. Of course they should. But like, I do think that, uh, you know, I, I do think that like, just sort of addressing the stuff on the local level oftentimes misses the sort of like massive societal things that I think are upstream of why policing is, is so bad in the United States. I don't know. I
2: don't know if you feel like that addresses your question or not. I think so. Yeah. And I think one thing that you said just, um, about two thirds through your response there. It shows probably the biggest crossover between what I heard from you and what I heard from Miles and also maybe where my position is, um, which you said that a lot of the problems with policing exist downstream of broader policy decisions about how resources are distributed. And part of what Miles was saying is like um, about how the same police uh, union head is elected every single time by the cops and they push for – Less accountability, more money, et cetera, so there the the police are existing in a backwater um, you know pond that's created by a dam, which is you know national and state and in some cases local, like county policy, so I definitely agree with that, and I also think like even if we create a really robust uh well functioning community defense system where you know let's say that we get to a point where sixty seventy percent of the people who live in a neighborhood of a couple thousand people actually get to know each other pretty well, have community assemblies where they make decisions about, you know, we're going to not call the police unless there's like really heavy weaponry involved. And even then we might not, um, we're going to do this other thing where, where we're going to respond to each other's needs instead of calling this other institution. Even if you do that, that's not going to stop no knock SWAT raids and you'll you'll act, you'll have the, the police view that as heavy competition, probably treat you as, you know, as though you were organized crime. Uh, and, and so I think that you leaving the state to do what it's doing uh, on top of a robust community solution is like leaving a massive tumor inside of your body. So I, I think I think that we, we definitely have a lot of yeah. agreement there. But I just wanted to yeah, also say silver. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ben.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, just to, just to jump on that point. Uh, like I also, you know, I also think one thing that like is really, really worth emphasizing here, just to go to the point about how, how much of this is downstream. Some of those larger issues about how material resources are defending are, are distributed in our society is that police in different areas act in really different ways. Like uh, the relationship that you know that people in like a poor neighborhood in Minneapolis have with the police is just like radically different from the relationship that people in like some affluent suburb have with the police right that they uh, be you know because again it's it's a system for you know for sort of um it's it's this really like brutal heavy-handed system for managing so, social ills that come out of uh out of out of poverty without actually helping people with the underlying thing so it's like uh people you know people in better off neighborhoods typically are rationally not really that worried about being brutalized you know most of the time by the police in ways that people in other neighborhoods very rationally are worried about being treated that way yeah
2: and i think that's a that's something I've heard as uh, some people describe as what abolition would look like is making policing what it looks like in rich neighborhoods, which is where they by and large, stay out of your business. Um, so yeah, definitely there's very different experiences of the police between different, you know, classes and, and, and municipalities, or even just neighborhoods between within a municipality. Um, and it's certainly also across countries, there's a very different relationship, but I was just going to say I've talked a lot and I see silver is still in the listener queue. So if you want to bring up silver, I can just hold my yep. tongue. And if you have more time, I I'd like to come up again, but I also can just bounce.
0: Okay. Uh, well, I think silver is actually having connection problems. I think I see that in the chat. Um, but, uh, but, but I do want to at least move towards, uh, towards wrapping up, so we'll probably wrap up the next like minute or two, but is there like maybe a last thing you wanted to bring up before
2: that? Sure, yeah, I guess just i I think that there are um, you know more so than what you experienced reading Angela Davis, there are more prescriptive um, you know suggestions for uh, um maybe a more like community based or anarchist type of framework for community protection, and and maybe resource sovereignty as well. Um, and I would say that just in my limited reading and discussions, that seems to make more sense to me than some of the other reforms. Because, for instance, like Seattle was – the Seattle Police Department were under a consent decree from the Obama era for years, and they they really experienced no changes whatsoever. and And that was supposed to provide some, like – community review of the existing public police system. So I feel like um, I feel like I agree with what Miles said, which is we should build an alternative that prov- that provides a, you know, a local working example for people to look at and say, this is what we mean. And then, so, so
0: what, what what would be an example of one of these things that does have more like specific prescriptions in it?
2: Well, when people say community defense, it's not just the end of the conversation. We're talking about you would have an, it would start from a community assembly. So a community assembly is something where everybody is uh, encouraged to attend and make decisions about um, all sorts of things. Like there's an issue with, uh, with water. There's an issue with uh, crime in a certain area. There's one person in the community who is, Um, really harmful to their neighbors and the and the assembly decides a you know how are we going to achieve consensus is it going to be hundred percent or two to one or whatever and then what's what do we what do we think should be done about these things and then instead of calling the police department to come and make matters worse uh you would have some people who are uh you know potentially armed or some people who would um you know, make a a physical intervention to stop somebody from, you know, hurting or one of their neighbors or stealing them or poisoning their dogs or whatever. Um, and I think there's a lot, there's, you know, I'll try and send you, I'll, I'll direct message you some other writings and examples about it. But the one thing I'll say, there's a good book called um, deciding for ourselves by Cindy Milstein. Um, it's kind of just a collection of essays about different, um, like community democratic democratic or directly democratic projects. And some of them do involve, um, you know, people stepping in to do community protection instead of the police. Yeah. Or I mean, i would particular. Uh, yeah, sir.
0: Yeah. I will say generally speaking, when I'm, I'm directed towards like either abolitionist resources, like there's a website called like five, five to abol- to abolish or, five steps step abolish or something. I might not remember it exactly, but people used to link this to me all the time. Uh, or, um, you know, I gave the example of Angela Davis before, uh, you know, you, you like these things tend to either be very heavy on, on theory and very light on sort of specific prescription or else to what they really are is they're, they're really sort of descriptions of like sort of steps that you can, um, there. What there really are like descriptions of reforms, uh, that uh, that don't abolish anything, but just just are like useful reforms, which I often agree with, but like are sort of recast as steps towards abolition or whatever, but don't really do shed much light about what abolition would mean or you know or or what the uh, or or what that could uh, that could look like. And, like as far as what those community assemblies would you know decide i mean right now the vast majority of people don't have the perception that calling the police only makes things worse right so like for example polls specifically of black voters um when they give them the options uh do you think the police presence in your neighborhood is too much too little or about right uh the uh, you know the the least popular option is always uh is always too much uh which is not to say that you know people who answer that way might you know uh um, might not also think police can be racist and abusive and all those things that we know that they can be. But, uh, but that I, I think, I think, I think a lot of people, even in demographics that we see is the most victimized by bad policing do, do see that as a necessary thing. So, I mean, like in the, I'm less interested in the sort of uh, consensus process of community assemblies or whatever, than by what the sort of, you know, non calling the cops uh solution looks like how that would be different from just having a sort of armed neighborhood watch uh, those are you know and and i, and I think i'm I, I think if you want to sort of win more mass support to that kind of program you know that would be th- these are the questions to uh you know these are the questions to have good answers to but uh i do like uh, I do like what uh what miles said earlier about you know, local experiments sort of, you know, increasing the uh the, the buffet of options to choose from in terms of like what people can advocate elsewhere because they have like specific things to point to. Uh I do like some of the specific reforms that he mentioned. Uh and this was a really interesting conversation. So uh Miles, do you wanna do you wanna have the last word before we go?
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean I guess my final thoughts would be just like I think there is a lot. I'm glad that there are these conversations now about what does abolition mean to to us as individuals? What does it mean to us as groups, as neighbors? What does it mean to white folks? What does it mean to black folks? What does it mean to rich folks? What does it mean to poor folks? And we all need to kind of like suss that out and keep having those conversations. I guess the one thing that kept coming up as, as you guys were talking the last couple of minutes was like, the the alinsky kind of idea of like ah. what, what is your theory of change you know and, and, and how does that apply to abolition i mean some might argue that it's a slow concerted meaningful process of stripping down breaking down an old system and making it into something better others might say that abolition is wiping the slate clean Uh, Flipping the proverbial card table and starting from scratch, I I guess I might be somewhere towards uh, the former than the latter, but, you know, it's up to interpretation and I'm not going to say anyone's right or wrong. Um, I just want us to, you know, like I mentioned before, keep experimenting with these things. Um, Try to develop models. Transparent ones, you know, do, do the postmortem if it doesn't go right and share that with others so that people can see that and move on and so on and so forth. And just keep engaging, keep trying to build a dual power that challenges the state's authority, you know, and, and keep trying to build inroads to other movements and other walks of life. You know, the, the police uh, reform or abolitionist movement is... Intimately tied to the movement for economic justice, which is which is intrinsically tied to indigenous rights and to environmental justice and things like that. So we shouldn't be we can't treat these uh, forms of organization or any of this conversation in a vacuum. We need to figure out how to marry these things together. I think, and yeah, that that's what I would leave off on.
0: All right, fair enough. Uh, Thank you so much for coming back on, Miles.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. Have a good one.
0: Uh, You too.